0: The Herstory, from Woman Hating, by Andrea Dworkin. Women should be beautiful. All repositories of cultural wisdom, from King Solomon to King Hefner, agree. Women should be beautiful. It is the reverence for female beauty which informs the romantic ethos, gives it its energy and justification. Beauty is transformed into that golden ideal. Beauty, rapturous and abstract. Women must be beautiful, and woman is beauty. Notions of beauty always incorporate the whole of a given societal structure. Are crystallizations of its values. A society with a well-defined aristocracy will have aristocratic standards of beauty. In western democracy, notions of beauty are democratic. Even if a woman is not born beautiful, she can make herself attractive. The argument is not simply that some women are not beautiful, therefore it is not fair to judge women on the basis of physical beauty, or that men are not judged on that basis, therefore a woman also should not be judged on that basis, or that men should look for character in women, or that our standards of beauty are too parochial in and of themselves, or even that judging women according to their conformity to a standard of beauty serves to make them into products, chattels, differing from the farmer's favorite cow only in terms of literal form. The issue at stake is different and crucial. Standards of beauty describe in precise terms the relationship that an individual will have to her own body. They prescribe her mobility, spontaneity, posture, gait, the uses to which she can put her body. They define precisely the dimensions of her physical freedom, and, of course, the relationship between physical freedom and psychological development, intellectual possibility, and creative potential is an umbilical one. In our culture, not one part of a woman's body is left untouched, unaltered. No feature or extremity is spared the art or pain of improvement. Hair is dyed, lacquered, straightened, permanented. Eyebrows are plucked, penciled, dyed. Eyes are lined, mascaraed, shadowed. Lashes are curled or false. From head to toe, every feature of a woman's face, every section of her body is subject to modification, alteration. This alteration is an ongoing, repetitive process. It is vital to the economy, the major substance of male-female role differentiation, the most immediate physical and psychological reality of being a woman. From the age of 11 or 12 until she dies, a woman will spend a large part of her time, money, and energy on binding, plucking, painting, and deodorizing herself. It is commonly and wrongly said that male transvestites, through the use of makeup and costuming, caricature the woman they would become. But any real knowledge of the romantic ethos makes clear that these men have penetrated to the core experience of being a woman, a romanticized construct. The technology of beauty and the message it carries is handed down from mother to daughter. Mother teaches daughter to apply lipstick, to shave under her arms, to bind her breasts, to wear a girdle and high-heeled shoes. Mother teaches daughter concomitantly her role her appropriate behavior, her place. Mother teaches daughter, necessarily, the psychology which defines womanhood. A woman must be beautiful in order to please the amorphous and amorous him. What we have called the romantic ethos operates as vividly in 20th century America and Europe as it did in 10th century China. This cultural transfer of technology, role, and psychology virtually affects the emotive relationship between mother and daughter. It contributes substantially to the ambivalent love-hate dynamic of that relationship. What must the Chinese daughter-slash-child have felt toward the mother who bound her feet? What does any daughter-slash-child feel toward the mother who forces her to do painful things to her own body? The mother takes on the role of enforcer. She uses seduction, command, all manner of force to coerce the daughter to conform to the demands of the culture. It is because this role becomes her dominant role in the mother-daughter relationship that tensions and difficulties between mothers and daughters are so often unresolvable. The daughter who rejects the cultural norms enforced by the mother is forced to a basic rejection of her own mother, a recognition of the hatred and resentment she felt toward that mother, an alienation from mother and society so extreme that her own womanhood is denied by both. The daughter who internalizes those values and endorses those same processes is bound to repeat the teachings she was taught. Her anger and resentment remain subterranean, channeled against her own female offspring as well as her mother. Pain is an essential part of the grooming process, and that is not accidental. Plucking the eyebrows, shaving under the arms, wearing a girdle, learning to walk in high-heeled shoes, having one's nose fixed, straightening or curling one's hair, these things hurt. The pain, of course, teaches an important lesson. No price is too great, no process too repulsive, no operation too painful for the woman who would be beautiful. The tolerance of pain and the romanticization of that tolerance begins here, in pre-adolescence, in socialization, and serves to prepare women for lives of childbearing, self-abnegation, and husband-pleasing. The adolescent experience of the pain of being a woman casts the feminine psyche into a masochistic mold and forces the adolescent to conform to a self-image which bases itself on mutilation of the body, pain happily suffered, and restricted physical mobility. It creates the masochistic personalities generally found in adult women subservient materialistic since all value is placed on the body and its ornamentation intellectually restricted creatively impoverished it forces women to be a sex of lesser accomplishment weaker as underdeveloped as any backward nation indeed the effects of that prescribed relationship between women and their bodies are so extreme so deep so extensive that scarcely any area of human possibility is left untouched by it men of course like a woman who takes care of herself The male response to the woman who is made up and bound is a learned fetish, societal in its dimensions. One need only refer to the male idealization of the bound foot and say that the same dynamic is operating here. Romance based on role differentiation, superiority based on a culturally determined and rigidly enforced inferiority, shame and guilt and fear of women and sex itself all necessitate the perpetuation of these oppressive grooming imperatives. The meaning of this analysis of the romantic ethos surely is clear. A first step in the process of liberation, women from their oppression, men from the unfreedom of their fetishism, is the radical redefining of the relationship between women and their bodies. The body must be freed, liberated, quite literally, from paint and girdles and all varieties of crap. Women must stop mutilating their bodies and start living in them. Perhaps the notion of beauty, which will then organically emerge, will be truly democratic and demonstrate a respect for human life in its infinite and most honorable variety.